Hi, and welcome to another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. This is Kathleen Mercury coming to you from St. Louis, Missouri, and I am so excited to welcome to the show Luke Laurie. Luke Laurie is a teacher and a game designer who's made a number of games that you have heard of, especially the Manhattan Project and Energy Empire, and his recent game, The Dwellings of Eldervale, just finished a robust Kickstarter campaign at funding well over a million dollars, which is very exciting. Luke has taught everything under the sun and was even something very cool sounding called an Einstein Fellow, which I'm sure he'll be happy to talk to us about. So Luke, thanks so much for being on the show. Kathleen, thanks for having me. Um, I've I've listened to this podcast, and I'm frankly a little bit intimidated by by how awesome the content is on here. Um, I've got one little correction in my intro that we hit half a million. We didn't hit a full oh, million shoot. with uh, Dwellings of Eldervale, but um, <laughs> I, I'm sure we'll sell a million dollars worth. So, oh my gosh! Uh, thank thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk, and uh, this is interesting for me because I've done a lot of podcasts, and generally, I'm pretty much ignoring three quarters of my life on most of the podcasts I'm on because I'm not really talking about my day job. And so this will give me an opportunity to try to connect the dots between uh, my moonlighting as a game designer and my day job as a science teacher. Right. And it's funny, too, because uh, you're someone that I've always wanted to meet in person, which I haven't had a chance to do that yet with. But also, you're a teacher as well. And I made the random comment after Gen Con saying that going back to work and being a middle school teacher will allow me to rest and recover from Gen Con. And you said same. And I was like, yes, we should talk. And so thanks for uh, being willing to do this, especially since you're, uh, you're, you know, like you said, the aspects of your life a lot of people sort of ignore, but I think it's really interesting, you know, because we don't necessarily work in isolation and certainly what you do in your life um, can be pulled forward into your work. So we'll just have a good time talking about what you do. So talk a little bit about what you teach. All right. Well, um, so I live in Santa Maria, California, uh, Central Coast. The town where I live is largely agricultural. Um, I teach eighth grade science at El Camino Junior High. Uh, the student population that I teach is largely low income. Uh, it's almost entirely Latino, mostly English language learners. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of immigrants in my community, and I've taught in the same school for 23 years, and uh, I love it. Um, it's also something where I've been doing it so long that uh, I uh, maybe I phone it in a little more. <laughs> I have my routines. I have the kind of things I'm comfortable with, and I spend a lot of my creative energy on my on my game design um, and other endeavors outside of school. And then with my with my school job, I'm still creative, but I might not quite have the magic I had maybe in my my first decade of my career. But that said, I try to mix it up quite a bit with uh, integrating engineering, and I do some gamification of some things in my classroom. Um, so I try to make it make it interesting and fun, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, when you're a master teacher and with 23 years of experience, you know, we both should be comfortable calling you that. You know, there certainly is a level of sort of knowing the space that you're working in. You know, like, for example, relating this to games, I've got a game that showed very well at Gen Con. There's a few tweaks I need to make, but it's one of those things is because I know the game and this sort of the space it occupies, I know how these changes 
have a pretty good understanding of what these changes will do to the game. And same likewise, too, when you're a teacher for so long and you know your material and you feel comfortable teaching, you know, making those changes to what you're doing, it isn't as stressful. It doesn't maybe feel as, like, explosive as, like, oh, my gosh, that actually worked when you're a new teacher. I think that's understandable for a lot of us who've been doing this for a long time. You know what? I, I think that might be true for me. I think that kind of depends on your, your adaptability. Um, I know that uh, some some teachers, some veteran teachers get so hardened in their ways, their their ideas are so calcified that that changes that they don't inspire, changes that, that, that don't come from them are the ones that, you know, can inspire all kinds of fear. Um, we're, we're kind of in a transition time period right now with uh, science education nationwide is shifting towards the next generation science standards. And for me personally, uh, this is a pilot year for curriculum and my school adopted a new schedule. We were on block schedules mm-hmm. for the last 14 years and now we're going to be on a six-period day, which is like the old kind of traditional junior high, right. um, which is fascinating because that's kind of being seen as an innovation. And um, so I'm going to have to kind of relearn some skills from teaching shorter classes. And uh, But I get the luxury now of uh, I'm going to have my students all year, whereas in previous years recently, I only had my, my students for half the year. And so I was not getting to know my students each year as much because of a semester system. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about gamification in the classroom. I think this is really interesting, especially be, be, like what you're saying is not just when you podcast, those areas of your life seem separate, but you talked about, you know, like for yourself, you know, a lot of your creative energy does go towards games. And we'll talk about that too. But when it comes to looking at your school, the subject you teach and the kids you teach, how have you used games then to maximize your effectiveness when you could? So my my experience as a game designer, um, so I've been designing games for about seven years, but um, I, I can go way back to being a dungeon master and creating adventures, uh, which I've done for most of my life. I played D&D for about 30 years straight. Wow. And um, during all that time period, uh, a lot of what you do in designing a role-playing game scenario is you're creating um, an environment, a description that, you know, it, it's coming from the words that you choose and the visual aids that you provide to craft an environment in which the people at your table are going to be making certain decisions. And a classroom is, is a lot of that. A classroom is a, a scenario where you are you're you're creating the the dynamics in which the students are going to act um, because I teach middle school and, and you do too um, a lot of what I teach isn't the content right so uh, we do a lot of like you know introduction to various types of content and introduction to different kinds of learning and kind of set the stage for what secondary school and college is going to be like for them but um, a lot of what we're teaching is behavioral skills. Mm-hmm. We're teaching we're teaching study habits, and we're teaching these kinds of uh, patterns of mind that are going to be beneficial to them. And so, my my experience as a dungeon master was you know teaching me all kinds of ways that you could, you know, if you if you create a poor a poorly designed adventure, no one's motivated to do anything. 
in that world. Right. And then they'll start kind of like causing their own trouble. They'll, uh, you know, they'll go around, start setting things on fire or whatever, because your adventure isn't interesting enough. And when you're teaching junior high students, um, everything about the, the environment that you create has to, has to motivate and drive these students because everything else in the world has the potential to be more interesting than your class. Right. So um, specifically, I do two main things that are kind of a gamification approach in my classroom. One of them is a positive discipline system that I call the colors of success. The way that that works is I have little slips of paper and on these little slips of paper and they're colored with different colors and text fonts are these words that are these various positive virtues and they're behaviors that I can reward um, when I see students exhibit them. So they include the words like responsibility, focus, respect, cooperation, courage, creativity, um, perseverance is probably one I didn't say. Mm -hmm. So the idea is um, I use these little slips of paper to catch students doing things right. So at various times, I'll be in the middle of teaching and I'm kind of multitasking. I'm, I'm presenting information. I'm giving instructions. But at the same time, I'm watching all of their behaviors because so much of teaching is about kind of watching the audience and then responding to them. Right. So along with that, I'm handing out these little pieces of paper that um, it's kind of like the concept that they use in a lot of schools where they'll give like some kind of buck right. or some kind of like merit slip or something like that. But too often I find that those, those kinds of rewards, um, while tangible, they're not specific enough to reinforce the behavior that earned it. So the idea is like if a student is respectful and that they're saying please and thank you, that they're tucking in their uh, chair or um, you know various kinds of behaviors that could be seen as respectful, and I give them a piece of paper that has the word respect on it, that's even more meaningful to the student because it's a reward, um, but it also has the specific word on it. A lot of my students are English language learners. Um, so a lot of the words that I use are cognates. They're the same or very similar in, in Spanish. Um, Spanish is the primary language for most of my students. So I'm also just plain reinforcing the vocabulary of the positive behaviors. The second major area that's gamified in my class is the manner in which I call on students. So, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a scholar, an education scholar might point out, you know, the way that, uh, that there's bias in how we, how we call on students or how we treat students based on their, their race or their gender or other characteristics or properties of students. Um, I, I have a system that takes the bias away from me but also creates an optimum anxiety level in the classroom to encourage participation by all students. So um, you're probably also familiar with like the whole like, uh, how do we get more girls in STEM? How do we get more minorities in STEM? Sure. So we're talking science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and so on. And um, junior high tends to be like that threshold age where, where you have some students kind of check out. Um, so I've been doing this long enough that countless of my former students are STEM professionals now. Um, and so they, they came from my school, they, you know, they went through various programs and they became engineers and they became scientists. And so I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of these, these kids. Um, but 
the, the manner in which this class runs keeps those students in, keeps them involved. So this system involves using cards. So it's just a, a three by five index card with student's name on it. And whenever I'm going over material, that's kind of like review material that you'd kind of expect everyone to know about. Mm-hmm. Um, I ask questions of the class. I ask the entire class. And then, then I'd say the name. I draw the card and I say the name on the card and I give that student an opportunity to answer. They answer as clearly as they can. They use a complete sentence. And if they're correct, they get a plus point on the card. And if they're incorrect, they get a minus point. Mm-hmm. I use this for reviewing and calling on students all the time, every day. It leads to me calling on my students thousands of times in the year. And each individual student will be called on between 30 and 60 times um, in a given term. So like a, in one semester, they'll get called on that many times. So um, that takes away that kind of uh, in, that um, subliminal bias that I might have or my desire to call on the student that I know will have the right answer and creates an environment where everybody in the class has to be paying attention all the time. They have to be they have to be checking in with their resources and and it's not just about memory either. These are these are questions where they, they get to use their stuff. They get to dig into the material. And then um, and then it creates a game because it has value to it. So when I see that these questions are too hard, I can dial it down and I can just modify as I go along and create an environment where you've got everybody involved, you've got everybody listening to each other, and um, and nobody's left out. I think those are both, I think those are really interesting. And especially, you know, one thing that today was uh, my first day back at our middle school and we had to write down, you know, things we believe, you know, on this like table tent for ourselves. And, and the first thing I wrote down was like, you know, good teachers teach kids first, then content, you know. And I think especially in middle school, you have to be so kid focused when it comes to success because, they're, one, they're in such a changing period of their life and the way their brain is rewiring itself is they're probably literally not going to remember what happened for a lot of what you do because literally the brain is like kind of, you know, cleaning out the cobwebs and one of those cobwebs might have been what we did on a particular day. Um, but also is, you know, they're just beginning to understand their place in the world. They're just beginning to, you know, realize that there's, you know, people around them and, and, and the relationships that they have with their friends from their elementary schools can change because they're trying to figure out who they are. And I think having this approach where you're trying to create systems that create levels of engagement through this, you know, um, through these types of gamification systems, especially when you say like it's a game because it has value to them, you know, that means that there's that buy-in from them. I think that's really smart. Now, I have a question about your positive discipline system. They have these different color-coded slips of paper with these words on it. Is it just that they collect these? Is there anything that happens as a result of these? So what's interesting is um, I've been doing that now for more than 20 years and um, the little slips of paper, the, the colors of success. And what I've experimented with, and I've even at various times done like formal research on it and so on and written papers. But in essence, it doesn't matter what I do with those pieces of paper. So I've had, uh, I've like given out like donuts and junk and treats at various times. I've done 
drawings with them. I've done auctions with them. I've allowed them to turn them in for points. And then in one year, I experimented by doing nothing with them at all. I've never had any observable difference in what I did with the slips afterwards. Huh. So some some students lose all these slips anyway. Like they'll collect them for a while and then they lose them all because they're they're junior high kids. Right. Um, and uh, and then. Some of them will like they'll they'll keep every last one and they'll get others to give them theirs too and they'll they'll have fifty slips right. I love that. Um, but the the you know junior high is so much about immediacy, right? And the the immediate reward and response that I have to the student is what matters the most. Mm-hmm. The fact that I look them in the eye, the fact that I I thank them for being respectful, the fact that they saw me notice them and that they have this little evidence of it. That moment is the, that's the magic moment there. That's what really matters. So yes, I've done all these other things with them, but that's almost incidental. That's for the handful of students in the class who have this long-term thing that the other students in the class have no sense of what it is they're thinking about. That's interesting. Well, and our school was recently uh, not like we got a national school of character or something like that. Um, and it was funny, though, because I had all my kids in a big circle, like doing this discussion. And it was really interesting and high level. And they had the visitors come in my classroom and it, like it looked amazing from the outside, like with the discussion we were happening. And it's like, it's not necessarily like that doesn't happen every day. I'm like, well, I guess they came in on a good day. You know, yeah. but one of the things that we did, I think, got a little bit dinged on was using extrinsic rewards, you know, mm-hmm. and that there were so many ways that kids we have uh, Ram Awards um, <laughs> shrewd bucks, you know, and, uh, we have Ram awards. And so the kids can, you know, buy things with them that they can, you know, get a piece of pizza that they can save up to go to a baseball game. But my favorite thing that happened with these Ram awards one year was the kids developed their own economy of them. And sixth graders care about Ram awards, seventh graders, not really eighth graders don't care, but the sixth graders had figured out the value of a RAM award because certain teachers would let them like get out of homework or whatever else and they actually ended up having a financial value associated with them and it became this whole other economy and I was so fascinated by this and they shut it down long before I heard about it and I was like well did anybody like talk to them did anybody write this down to figure out like how just because the fact that they had this whole economics no one else thought was interesting but I like games and game design I'm like oh my gosh this is amazing you know what I mean but the fact that they did that in of itself is one you know they're they're gaming the game you know they're creating their whole new game it's like yeah if, they were, if you're gonna give us these things we're gonna really make them effective but also too is you know is a pencil going to really reinforce all the behaviors that you know you want to reinforce and I think that's interesting that you played around with it and even just tested like the do nothing approach because honestly even getting that like piece of paper is like the extrinsic reward you know what I mean it's mm-hmm. like enough to like have this like little gift that says I think you're great you know and for some of these kids where they're so afraid 
of, you know, they don't want to stick out, but they don't want to be forgotten, you know, and to have that little moment with you, that's really huge. Like, it's such a smart, thoughtful way to, like, create those relationships and to reinforce with kids uh, what they can be doing. And and I'm not opposed to extrinsic rewards either. And, uh, in fact, I think, I think junior high is, like, an optimum grade level for it. Um, some cases in elementary, yes, but the the effects of intrinsic rewards rewards depend a lot on the the types of rewards that they are, and some of it can depend on the socioeconomic status of your students mm-hmm. too. Um, if I were to be teaching in Mountain View and I was to give a kid a piece of pizza, it's not going to have the same impact as it is in my community. Sure, um, I, I was citing a city in the Bay Area for your listeners who are. That's like Silicon Valley. Right. So um, uh, the students that I teach are almost exclusively pretty low income students. And um, so like a reward of food might seem might seem kind of petty, uh, but a reward of food in my community can be seen as, oh, you care about me. Mm-hmm. You, you fed you fed me. Um, and that can actually that can actually say a lot. Um one of the things that I've done with my uh, so uh, for over 20 years, I ran a group called uh, Mesa. Mesa is Mathematics, Engineering, Science, Achievement. Uh, it's in the, mostly in California. Uh, used to be in Nevada and Arizona, but I, I think it's mostly in California. Um, and it's run by the UC system. So Mesa is an outreach program for engineering that's coordinated with the universities, but um, it meets as clubs in junior highs and high schools at various schools in, in the state. Mm-hmm. And my students, one year after a discussion, decided that we were going to have a ramen party. <laughs> and basically, it's like we bring cups of noodles and they like tapatio and like different kinds of hot sauces and uh, limon. You bring like lime and we just brought all this junk to go with it, cookies and all this stuff. And so we met after school and we had a ramen party. These students will never forget the ramen party. <laughs> the ramen party was like the best event of the year. And all it was was, you know, like a cup of noodles. It cost like 50 cents. Right. But it was it was the it was the context mm-hmm. that mattered. Right. And I think too, especially for a lot of kids. I work in an affluent school, but there definitely is a significant smaller population of kids who, you know, qualify for free and reduced lunch. Um, you know, uh, they're in transition. There's a variety of reasons, and and that's one thing that we sort of struggle with in our school when it comes to extrinsic rewards because we have both of the, that dichotomy. Yeah, you know, where we've got yeah. kids where, you know, <laughs> they're already worth way more than I ever will be. You know, next to kids who only reliably, consistently eat at school. And so, you know, and I think we, when you were talking about, too, with bias, wanting to make sure that we are responsive to the needs of our kids, but we don't use bias about who we think they may be and what they think they may want in terms of motivation for them. And it can get really, really tricky. Yeah, and, uh, and and with middle school especially, because you're never quite sure which behaviors are like a result of some kind of fundamental issue, or it's a result of kind of, um, you know, just poor adjustments during adolescence, you know, those tough years. 
Um, but when it comes to when it comes to kindness, when it comes to showing generosity, when it comes to like um, engaging with students while also not judging them for the mistakes, all of those things are great for working with all students. Um, but they're especially uh, beneficial when you don't know which of your students are uh, trauma victims, right. for example, right. and. And that's that can be independent. I mean, it can be very high in a low socioeconomic school, but even amongst affluent kids, you don't know which of these kids has experienced some kind of trauma and that whatever, like just small tokens of generosity can sometimes um, help you engage with that student, help that student on their path. Yeah. I remember I was talking with one of the teachers at my school about, uh, and it was like a variety of things that you wanted to improve on. And one was relationships with kids. And this teacher's like, I don't really have that. And I just, and, and he said in a way that, you know, he's like, I know this is something I need to work on, but he's also somebody who's been teaching for yeah. close to 30 years. And so I would suggest for him or anybody else like that, maybe start sooner than later. Um, but I just can't imagine, you know, I mean, and what I do is very personal, you know, when I work with gifted kids, teaching them game design, I'm ushering them into a world of this is what failure is. And this is what happens when you're not good at something the very first time you do that. And I have to be able to like coach them through this because they've never experienced anything like this before. I've suddenly, you know, turned the colors on for someone who wasn't able to see color before that. So um, you have to know who these kids are when you come to them. And like you said, is, you know, there's not just like the differences between them, but then there's like the day-to-day -day difference. One day a kid will be an absolute monster and the next day they're so yes. incredibly apologetic and they've written you a letter apologizing, you know, saying how sorry they are for what they did the previous day. I mean, you just have, mm -hmm. you have to, you know, be able to sort of like, you know, ride that sort of like ebb and flow of what happens with individual kids plus whole kids, you know, whole groups of kids. And, and I think that's really interesting. That pulls me into your, um, your second, this mat, the manner that you have on calling on students, um, was the motivation for this to improve your own methodology or was it designed to originally to just make sure you were getting all the kids involved? So, um, it, it killed an entire flock of birds uh, with one stone. Huh. Um, sorry, Elizabeth Hargrave. <laughs> so basically the idea was that I, I, I did want a randomized way of calling on students. And I'd, saw, I'd seen various teachers use this like little like popsicle sticks or whatever. And um, I, I also, I, I went into a classroom and I observed it one time where I watched a teacher who had this super complex point system for everything mm -hmm. like every little thing was points per groups points for the class or points for individuals and that was crazy and i'm never doing that but what i wanted was something that was clean and efficient for documenting uh student interactions and so when i when i'm marking those little hash marks that are just like a plus point or a minus point i'm I'm, I'm documenting my observations of their performance in class. At the same time, this is one of the ways that we would go over a lot of our work. Mm -hmm. So you know how like you have your graded work and then you have kind of the work that's kind of in between that doesn't necessarily get turned in for an academic grade. Right. So a lot of that work, like it might be like short assignments and that sort of thing, warm ups, et cetera. Um, 
I, I go over those using those cards. So this actually becomes the academic grade. This is this is your recorded grade and this is your class participation um, for those kinds of things. So it becomes a becomes an academic grade. It becomes like a documentation for the students' behaviors. And then it it's also a motivator. And as a motivator, it's affecting the behaviors um, and also getting students involved who might otherwise never volunteer and also never choose to respond, even if they're called on under like more conventional ways mm-hmm. of, um, of selecting respondents. Um, when you started getting into designing tabletop games, did your, because you said like, you know, this was, um, tabletop games of your creative outlet schools, um, and teaching, which you obviously care a lot about, and um, that's evident. But did did they have any effect one on the other as far as when you're designing game? Does your work as a teacher come through when you're you know doing something as a teacher? Does that game designer side sort of poke through? Like how do those two sides of you come together? So for the most part, they don't. Huh. Um, I mean, not like overtly. So um, for. For various years in my teaching, at various times, I have run games clubs mm-hmm. and I have brought in like kind of like um, gateway games and simple games and kids games. Um, for my students, a lot of times they have no games in their home. Um, a lot of them have no games and no books and no computer in their home. And so you need like the really kind of the lowest level, easiest games because your your ability to function in like uh, tabletop gaming, it's um, it's kind of a, a step-like process. You know, some of us who played a lot of games when we were young, we can jump right in and we could play um, something like Settlers of Catan without any difficulty. And then we can move into heavier games like, you know, within a year or two. Um, with a lot of my students, um, we're having to go and like play like little kid games, like first, second, third grade games and kind of build them up to more complex games. That's not true of every kid. Once in a while, uh, kids are coming in now with their own magic decks or Yu-Gi-Oh decks mm-hmm. and they just want a place to play. Um, but for me, the like the intersection is in one, it's in the content that I've included in some of my games. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the Manhattan Project Energy Empire, it does build on things that I've uh, worked on regarding uh, science and also energy policy and things that I worked on when I worked on Capitol Hill for a short while. Um, but also it it's connects in terms of how I relate to my students. So I tell my students that I'm a game designer. I tell my students that I'm a gamer. I tell my students that I grew up playing Legos. I can actually tell students now that I play Dungeons and Dragons and they know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about um, w- because of Stranger Things and, and other stuff. Whereas even five years ago, if I would have said I played Dungeons and Dragons, they would have had no idea what I was talking about. Um, so uh, this last this summer I, I did uh, I went to Comic-Con and I spoke on two panels there. I'm going to be able to go back now um, and tell my students I've been to Comic-Con and that's a that's a coolness factor thing. Mm-hmm. That's a how will I connect to and relate to my students, and also how will I bring my geekier students into the fold? How will I show them that I can I can see their perspective and I know about their world, 
And then there's another group of students that I go out and I play basketball with. So trying to engage with students in different levels, that's a big part of where um, my connection to the game design world comes yeah. in. Well, that's, that's actually a good segue, though, into um, your Einstein Fellowship, because I think that's really cool, especially considering when you were talking about energy policy and how I was wondering, like, how much that fellowship led to or helped me with the design of Manhattan Project Enemy, uh, <laughs> not Enemy, Energy Enemy Empire. Empire. <laughs> so... Um... There's, uh, there's a lot of awards for teachers. And in my first decade of teaching, I chased them all. And um, I, I was really looking for, for validation that the ways that I was teaching and my kind of uh, creative and somewhat rebellious approaches were justified. Mm -hmm. So um, this is in the time of uh, No Child Left Behind came along around 2001. I started teaching in 97. Um, so basically I got trained to teach in the time period where it was, it was new math and extensive problem solving and open-ended thinking mm -hmm. and all this great deep stuff. And then along comes no child left behind. And it's like, now we're going to do all this rote stuff and we're going to teach to the test. And so it clashed with what I wanted to do in class. So what I did was I stubbornly continued to teach the way I wanted to. Um, so that involved um, using various kinds of simulations, getting students to learn to code even way back in the late 90s, um, bringing in robots. Back in the early days when I would write grants for robotics, I had to justify them for how they would help their math and language arts scores. Um, nowadays, I could write a grant and say this is STEM and it's for engineering and that's an adequate justification today. Right. But in 2001, if it didn't show it was going to raise your math or language arts scores, there was no money available. So um, I won various awards. I won the Amgen Award for Science Teaching Excellence. I was like County Teacher of the Year and all these things. Mm -hmm. But um, the Einstein Fellowship is an award that sends you to live in Washington, D.C. for an entire year. And you work in one of several government agencies, either NASA, National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, um, Capitol Hill, Department of Energy. And um, I got chosen to work on Capitol Hill. So uh, I interviewed with a bunch of different offices. I interviewed with uh, in Barack Obama's office for about three hours straight with four different people. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I ended up taking a position with Congressman Mike Honda who represented a big part of Silicon Valley back then. So that year, I got to work in a congressman's office. I got to see all the ins and outs for how Congress works and doesn't work. I got to work on um, science, education, water policy, appropriations. I even worked on immigration and homeland security issues. Hmm. And um, I got to meet like lots of famous people like... Al Gore mm -hmm. and uh, got to see Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama went to the White House. Um, and all that is the, the Einstein Fellowship, the Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellowship came from one of those kinds of national security kind of post-Cold War fear that we're falling behind things. Mm -hmm. 
And it, it was actually part of a Defense Authorization Act, if I remember correctly. But basically, it was written as, we need science and math teachers to inform Congress and policymaking. And so to do that, they established this award. So basically, it's only about 15 to 20 teachers every year go to D.C. and work in these various agencies in these different kinds of positions and do this job. Um, it was a fantastic opportunity, and I met a lot of great people, uh, did a lot of cool stuff. Um, I did work. This was like uh, early in uh, various kinds of uh, legislative efforts on climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did some work on some climate change, climate change um, uh, legislation and um, that sort of thing. And then I took that knowledge back to the classroom um, and continued my work. But I gradually moved into wanting to kind of divorce myself from being involved in policy and politics and instead move into something where my work makes everybody happy. Mm-hmm. See, when you work in politics, you make half the people happy and you upset the other half. Uh, there's always there's always conflict with every given decision or every given kind of effort. There's very little consensus. And so um, with game design, I don't have that. I mean, yeah, there's people who might not like my game, but they can play something else. So as a game designer, what I'm doing um, is, you know, trying to increase the net joy in the world by people getting to joy, playing these fun games. And meanwhile, I get to play all these great games and meet all these cool people like yourself. Well, that's cool. Uh, I mean, I'm certainly glad for it. And I think, you know, uh, I love your ambition, you know, especially and, and the fact that you've kind of settled in the, in the spot that's good for you. Um, as far as that goes, because I can definitely understand, um, as a teacher, you know, you can walk into, I could have walked in, oh, I did walk in as a middle school, you know, social studies teacher for my first job. I could still be there. I could walk out at the end of my 30 years or however many doing, you know, seventh grade social studies, which is what you're doing with science actually. But the thing is, is the way you've been so innovative about it is I think why, you know, you're able to get yourself to this place, you know, when there's people who, you know, it's probably best if they were to move on, but they don't really know how to move on or they don't want to move on. They don't want to leave retirement, the pension behind, whatever the the case study is. It's so frustrating because the job could be so much more, you know, for them and for their kids. So I love that, you know, you pushed yourself to explore so many different, you know, avenues for yourself as a teacher to broaden that perspective. I mean, it's why I, do what I do as far as like sharing all my game design resources and, you know, and doing this podcast, because otherwise, you know, there aren't many teachers like me. I'm the only teacher like me in my school district, you know, and so to have the opportunity to talk with others who, you know, want, you know, who, you know, are gamers, you know, or designers and, you know, just want to be the best possible teachers for their students that they can, this allows me to have that experience, you know, and so a little bit of ambition and drive, I think is a good thing. And it's what made me be able to talk to you. So look at that. Yay. (laughs) And I need to dig into your resources. I I took a look at your website and um, I almost feel there's two areas where I feel like there's a sense of regret in what I haven't done with gaming and, and my experience with it. Um, 
I mean, I like to think that everything that I that I do and have discovered affects what I do as a teacher mm-hmm. and affects how I interact with students. But no, I'm not teaching any students to design games like like what you're doing, and and I know others who do that, and that's fantastic. Um, I haven't brought too many like actual games into the class and made use of them. Uh, you spoke with uh, John Conveyo mm-hmm. recently. Yeah, John Cavio, Genius Games. How do you, how do you say his Cavio? last name? Cavio. And uh, I mean, he's doing amazing stuff with building games that actually teach specific science content. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be bringing those in. So I, I feel like I want to discover more about how I could do more with gaming in my class, but at the same time, I'm tired. Right. Uh, there's so many things to do. I'm involved in so many other things. Right. Um, I'm involved with my union as well. I do things related to that. Mm. Uh, I'm a department chair. Yeah. Um, got to handle the budgets and uh, it's just, there's, there's so many things that I, have to be done and have to be taken care of. I think it's okay to pick a couple lanes. You know, I think it's okay. Like one of the things that, uh, I just had someone email me about was to ask what standards, you know, all of my lessons tied to because um, their administrators are interested and want to see, mm. you know, how this relates to standards. And I don't ever have to do that. I don't ever have to show that. I don't ever have to provide that. Is this something that's yeah. probably beneficial if I do this for people using my resources? Yes. And so this year we're doing this, um, I mean, like, Basically, like every year you have to pick something, you know, in terms of like your professional growth. And this may be the thing that I pick is to figure out what, you know, how best my, what I'm providing teach to various standards so teachers can use that. And I, and I think it's a good thing. It's something that probably uh, needed to be done a long time ago just to like formalize that and document that. But um, it's also one of the same thing though is, you know, when there's so many things going on, you know, you can't put out every fire. And I remember when I went back to school to become a teacher and especially in one of my classes for gifted education, one of the activities they had us do was to write an obituary and it's great. Yeah. This is why I haven't done it with students, but, (laughs) um, but basically the idea is it's sort of like a goal setting thing, but with the twist that you can't do everything, you know, you might say you want to write 50 books and find the cure for cancer and play on six world cup soccer teams. But the reality is you're not going to be able to do all that. I'm not trying to crush anybody's dreams, but let's be real. So um, the idea behind writing this obituary is that you basically say, these are the things I really want to do. These are the mm. things that matter to me. And I actually, it's interesting because I, I'd be interested in revisiting that and seeing what I wrote and, and seeing what, I have no idea where that might be anywhere. Ooh, I bet I have, I don't, even, I don't even know if I have that anymore. But I'd be interested to see what I would put down like what I put down in that obituary because I'm in the same way, you know, and I think a lot of us, especially when you're trying to break the mold as far as what's expected, break the mold as far as what teaching can be, how you relate to students, you know, I mean, I have, I think 40 pages of content total for game design. All the rest of it is what they do and what comes out of them and all that, you know? So, I mean, um, but the one thing about the obituary assignment is I was the only person in my class who actually said how they died. And I said that I died Ooh. fighting Vikings. Because if you're going to go, <laughs> go fighting Vikings. You know what I mean? So 
Did you, did you take, how many did you take with you? Oh, I probably would be like super easy to kill. I'm, I'm fast yeah. enough, you know, but I think at the end of the day, I, I don't think I'd be the, I, I, I don't know. I'll say, I'll hope that I severely injured one's like calf muscle or something like that, where when they stitched it up, he'd have like a memory of me, but I don't think I, I don't, I don't know if I would take out a Viking. Well, that's, that's kind of a, a morbid approach. So you did this, this was during your teacher training. Yes. They said, write an obituary. You're supposed to be like writing your like resume and applying and right. thinking positively. And here you are saying, oh, this is the end. Right. Which is why I've never had kids do it. But I've, I've talked with kids about it and yeah. they have that same sort of, ooh. And I'm like, that's why we're not going to do it. I mean, I'll plant the seed and I'll let them think about that. But you know, my mm. students, well, I mean, middle school kids, they don't think they're going to die anyway. It absolutely is impossible. Like if mm. you say to kids like, well, you know, you're going to die someday. They're like, oh, gee, thanks. I'm like, no, I'm literally stating <laughs> like the, the, the statistical certainty that you will not live yeah. forever. This will come to an end at some point. That I don't want to hear that. You know what I mean? So that's always kind of funny. It's also funny too asking kids uh, how many kids they want to have. Um because I'm always like, so it's like, oh, I want to have like six kids. They're like, oh my God. <laughs> like, you can't even remember to bring your binder to class every time. You're going to have six kids. You yeah. Know, good luck on yeah. feeding them. So it's kind of putting, putting their behaviors in context to what that will look like as an adult <laughs> is, is usually fairly effective. Yeah. Um, you know, the kid who literally, yeah, you can't remember your pencil. Will you be able to take care of children? Um, things like that are, are great connections. I, I, I would be really cautious about doing anything like a, like an obituary. Again, going back to like the kids that you teach, you may have trauma. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, you'd never know, um, unless a kid reveals it, that they, they may have experienced death, you know, immediate death of a family member or something like that. And it could inspire who knows what. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I agree. And that's why I've never done it. I mean, I worked with a a program this summer called Missouri Scholars Academy. And we spent an hour every day. It's for gifted high school students at a university. And so I taught them game design for three hours a day. And I had a group of kids I'd meet with in the afternoon for a personal and social dynamics curriculum. And it was really interesting, but there were some things where, you know, I expressed concerns that I thought were maybe pushing them too far or that could push kids too far. And, mm-hmm. um, and the end, like, like in the end, um, I was okay to sort of dial some things back, you know, and to present things in a way that kids had choice as far as where they wanted to go. But, you know, there's one where they had to like write down the like four roles that they have in their life. And, you know, it could be something like them sister that I'm a friend, but it could be something, you know, more deeper, like I'm a provider. If that's one of their jobs is to work and help provide for their family home, you know, it didn't have to be, uh, it could be uh, much more personal. And so one of the things that they did was they would talk about that role and then we had them like tear it up and throw the role. Now, granted, these are high school students. They're all going to their junior year of, college, of high school. So they had a little bit more age and time and maturity behind that. And no one in my class seemed to get too upset about it. But I know that there are people in other classes that really had a hard time with that. And so I think it's interesting, yeah. you know, 
when I talk, I often make the analogy that teaching game design with my students is the equivalent of pushing them off a cliff because many of them have never had this type of like struggle over a school project ever. Um, you know, they do it, they get a good grade on it, they move on to the next thing, they don't have to think about it anymore, and game design is not like that, you know. And so it's like if I'm going to, and I, one thing that I've said many a time is if I'm going to push them off the cliff, that if I'm not going to catch them, I have to like teach them how to fall. And so mm. when we only have like this one hour to kind of throw this like, you know, like for some kids could be this sort of like atomic bomb, you know, um, in terms of like for them emotionally, like I was really concerned. And it does stem from the fact that I teach middle school kids, you know, that, you know, with, when they're high school and they're older and they're more mature, but they might still, that might be on the outside, on the inside, they could still have a lot of those same insecurities. And I'm really, really careful about what I put kids through. And it's, it's still hard for me every single semester when I have kids design games and I have kids who I know do not feel successful, they leave my class not feeling successful. And they might think they made something. They might feel like, yeah, it's better. But do they feel like this was a good thing? And I have kids who don't. And I struggle with it every single time. Every single time, should I keep doing this? And this is like the thing I'm known for, and this is the thing that I share with everybody and I talk about, but I always talk about this too, because mm. it is when you're working with people and you're putting them in these sorts of like laboratory little experiments, you know, we have a responsibility for them and for their emotional and, and mental well-being that, you know, when you have, you know, types of projects that really will push them, you know, you have to, have to, have to be really mindful of the negative repercussions that might pop up that you did not anticipate. That is a fascinating topic. And that, that actually relates to um, my work with robotics. Because, um, so game design itself is inherently, it's extremely difficult. Um, it's extremely difficult because there's the expectation that, uh, that, mechanically and mathematically structurally all of the stuff that you've designed works mm -hmm. um, but it also is social in that you're ultimately trying to elicit an emotion mm -hmm. uh, primarily like this sense of fun this happiness like you're trying to make people happy with a thing that you made so that's like what you would think of more like from art like I'm going to make a painting or I'm going to write some music and that's going to uh, instill this emotion. So you're creating basically something mathematical and structural that's also going to inspire emotion. And that's, that's super, super difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was talking uh, recently and I, I said something along the lines of uh, 80 to 90% of the games that I design uh, will never see light of day. Um, it's about one in 10. It might even be one in 20. I don't know. I have designed scores of games that I might use bits and pieces of them, but entire games that I'll, they'll never be published. They'll never be done. Um, and they've been abandoned. And, um, like with your first project, I could see that being extremely tough. When, when I do robotics with my students, a lot of students come in with, um, with, it's so different from so many of their experiences that they all are bad at mm -hmm. it. Um, so the entire class, for the most part, feels frustration together. 
Um, and so that that kind of learning gets scaffolded in a way where the first project is always just build a robot following the instructions. And they don't have to create anything. They don't have to invent anything. It doesn't have to be inspired. And they're actually, they're actually learning a science standard, which is like being able to read and interpret mm-hmm. uh, diagrams and directions and so on. And for a lot of students, that's tough, just building that thing from the instructions. And I'm preparing them, you know, to be able to get something from Ikea someday. They've just got to be able to follow the directions. And if they do that, they won't break it or they won't destroy it. They'll get it together. Um, Having everyone kind of go through and experience that baseline success initially Mm -hmm. is important before we move into anything where they have to they have to problem solve or they have to be innovative. So um, maybe that's true with your students where uh, an initial experience that would get them to design something that is guaranteed to work, mm-hmm. um, like a framework or structure where they don't have to do so much in terms of invention, but instead are just applying something. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I actually used to teach uh, robotics too um, with my gifted kids years ago. Um and we did um, NXTs back when Lego had those, and yep. and I know what you're talking about because the the instruction guides on how to put together the robot and this is a very simple, straightforward setup where you can just immediately once you have it going to start working with this, it'll roll forward, it'll roll backwards, it'll turn, um, but it, it's entirely language independent. So you really have to yeah. look at the pieces, manipulate them 3D, try to see how this two-dimensional image relates to these three-dimensional pieces, and try to work and work and work till you can get the robot together. And I've seen kids, like you said, like really struggle to get through that. Now, in my classes, I have them design a race game after they've played a bunch of games um, so that they basically – a race game provides a structure where – the objectives and the goal are the same. Be the first person to cross the line. So all they have to do is worry about that how they do it. And I don't let them use dice. I don't let them use like any type of randomizer. So then they just have to use ideas from their, the different games that they've played and, um, and incorporate those. And they've come up with some really good little race games as a result. And I think they feel like pretty good about that. And it's interesting because... Um, when they would then go into like a bigger project, and I think when I, the word bigger may be a misleading, you know, misleading because, you know, maybe they think, and I, I'm sure I use the word, so I'll just say it, you know, but as a bigger project, if they think they have to be more ambitious or they have to include mm-hmm. more things in this game. And, um, you know, and, and I, have, I definitely have kids who do feel successful, but, and it's hard when, like I said, when they don't, um, I've had kids say that they felt like their race game was better than like the, the later game they made later. Mm. Um, it's really interesting. And I haven't, I've shifted my, and I, last year I think was a good year. I shifted my evaluation away from anything about the game itself to, I mean, can they tell me the theme? Could they tell me what their mechanics were? Could they write a short description of the game itself? That was about as much, technical information about the game itself all the rest of it was all about um their experiences in terms of listening to feedback from other people incorporating their ideas into the process of design and i think by shifting the focus to that process that definitely has helped um kids understand that this is what i care about and this is what success is because 
you know, you won't have something done and it, you know, finished and all that. So you have to, you know, really coach them to the right place. It's really a mindset thing as far as getting them to understand that, you know, success is incremental to understand that, um, you know, it's okay to have something unfinished and still find value in it because that's what we do, you know, as adults, but this is kind of a first time for them as kids, or at least within a school setting. And, you yeah. know, they'll build tree houses out of, you know, logs and stuff like that in their backyard and be like, look at this cool tree house I made, you know, no one would buy it. You know what I mean? But when it comes to, when we put that school layer on top of it, all of those kinds of things that they've been programmed to know and understand about school and their performance in it come into play as well. Your kids have logs in their backyard. <laughs> I assume. I hope some have a couple. My students barely even have yards. Uh, some of my students probably have logs in their backyards. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's just tough. Um, yeah, but I think, it, but I think in the I, end, it's the, worth it. You know what I mean? It's worth doing. Yeah, you're you're onto something in that. I mean, the key is the iterative process. Yes, it's. It's the teaching the perseverance. It's teaching how you, um, you know, you make those observations and you make those modifications. Um, a, a lot of uh, like science work these days, the the focus is on like some kind of um, lab journal. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that have you have you documented your process and the documentation of the process is what's most important. What's fascinating is um, it, it almost relates to the shift in the in the science standards because um, not so long ago the emphasis on science was like you're going to do some kind of experiment and you follow all this right and you're going to have conclusion mm-hmm. and your conclusion is going to be clear because you isolated your variables and so on and um, scientists have been saying for years that that's that's just not how it works right. like. The vast majority of science is simply gathering information and finding out that it wasn't significant. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> if your class, like if you were teaching students, like I'm going to teach you science every day, we're going to gather data and the entire year is going to go by and none of this data is going to be significant and we will have learned nothing. Um, that would be pretty close to the way real science works. But that doesn't give you all the bits and pieces to understand the full nature of science. Mm-hmm. So you have to you have to kind of doctor the experience so that it's not just a um, a raw replication of what the field is like, but instead it's kind of like this uh, augmented, um, adjusted. It's the kind of Disneyland version where everything kind of works out in the end somehow mm-hmm. and. I don't know the magic bullet for doing that with games and teaching kids to to be able to build games. I know with with robots, a lot of the times the the unsuccessful groups will start replicating the things that they're observing the successful groups doing. And a critic might say, well, that's cheating. But anyone who understands engineering would know that that's that's the way engineering works everywhere, everything aside from the very tiniest of changes is a copy of something else. So we, we kind of copy and modify and copy and modify. And, uh, and, and that's how people learn to code. I mean, they learn by using other people's code and adjusting it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so maybe that's, 
the, maybe the answer to finding success is somewhere in that. Yeah. Taking something successful with the tiniest of an adjustment. Yeah. Or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And I think, um, and, and you know, it's not all me, you know, because when I give them, you know, it's also wanting to give them enough creativity in terms of choices. I love that this is an interview for you, for you, but now it's coming back to me, but I love this discussion so much. Um, but you know, they don't like it when I put restrictions on them. And a lot of the restrictions are put on them for good reasons. Um, I mean, some are just, they can't have uh, games using weapons that aren't allowed at school. Mm -hmm. We don't allow them at school. We don't put them in games. The main reason is because I hit you, you hit me back is really repetitive. A lot of times right. in games and it's all not even Vikings or Viking weapons are allowed. Every now and then I like a sword might slip through, you know, okay. <laughs> um, so the, that sort of thing, but I don't. I don't let them do co-op games because co-op games, the board has to be a viable fifth player that beats them about sixty, seventy percent of the time, and that's just really hard to do. So I don't do that. You know, just all things that I've learned over the years as far as that goes, and it's one of those things too where I'm afraid, like at some point, if I crack this, you know, uh, is that great? <laughs> you know, is that is that what I want? Is that does that mean that I can be like, okay, cool, I'm done? You know, like I've done enough with this? Because I don't even know, I mean, like for myself and like my own games and what I'm working on, there's plenty of times where it's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Where I'm just trying to do stuff. And I mean, I'm doing it for fun. I'm making them do it. And then I have somebody else play test my game and they poke this massive hole in something. I'm like, I'm so glad yeah. you did that. But now I need to fix that. You know what I mean? Like for me, there's a voluntary action about it for them. It's not, and we only have so much time. So it's interesting, like, trying to take this very real-world aspect of, you know, something that they could be doing and making it a semester, I don't know. Well, there's these, there's these stages in being a designer that are fairly common. There's, the, there's like the early, just kind of struggling along. Maybe mm -hmm. there's an inspiration that creates something mm -hmm. cool. Then there's that, I did it, I made a game. And then there's that delusion that everything after that is going to be successful. Right. And then there's the numerous failures that teach you that no, that initial success is was difficult and every success will be difficult. Right. And then you, you kind of just keep going with that. Yeah. The, the challenge for you is that a uh, very short amount of time, they have to kind of go through that cycle. Yeah. And hopefully, I mean... You're designing a game in itself. Yeah. The game is build this game and you're thinking about how they feel about the game because you do want the game to be fun even when you lose. Mm -hmm. It has to be fun when you yes. lose. Yes. Yes. I think that's a perfect uh, – I think that's a perfect place to wrap it up actually. Um, uh, it has to be fun even when you lose. Because that is <laughs> that is middle school. That is what we. That's do. a terribly depressing final note. <laughs> well, it, it isn't, but it, it's not though. I remember when I was in uh, when I was in middle school, I made a sign for my door using Print Shop back in the day. I'm an Apple IIe. Um, I made a sign for my bedroom door and it said, "I feel much better now that I've given up hope." And my mom was like, "That's terrible." I'm like, "No, it's good." You know, like it means I'm letting go of some stuff, and then I can just you know focus on the things that matter. And she was like, okay, I guess, you know, she wasn't really just 
you know, my print shop, yeah. like wagon wheel font that I was using this bizarre sign, you know, but, um, but that's all right. No, I, I can, I appreciate that, you know, because, you know, in a lot of really good games, you want to have as much fun, even if you know you're losing, you want to still have fun when you're playing it. And like with what I'm doing right now and what you're doing, like you want to still have fun with it, even on the days when you're tired or you're, you know, you've done this a lot or whatever it is. Like you still want yeah. to have that, like you still want to feel good about it while you're doing it. And I think that's, I think that's totally fun. I think if you're, if you're no longer having fun while you're losing, that's a much bigger problem. So I'm very okay with having fun while you're losing. I think a long-term analogy for it is that I will run into students. Uh, I, I live and work in the same community. So I run into my students all the mm-hmm. time, my former students. And my, even my students who didn't do well in my class are usually happy to see me, want to talk to me, want to tell me what they're doing with their lives and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of that. They didn't necessarily win the game. They didn't necessarily achieve academic success. They didn't necessarily thrive in science. They didn't become scientists. But they enjoyed the experience enough that it was a positive, memorable thing for them and it made a difference. Yeah. And that's what we can that's all we can hope to do. That's a much better way. I tricked everybody when I said that we were ending. Ha ha ha. That's the real <laughs> ending. Luke Laurie, thank you so much for spending. Thank you. By the way, this is Luke's last night of summer. He goes back to work tomorrow. I've already been there for two whole days. So thank you for spending your last bit of summer with me to talk about all this. It's been really great. Thank you. Hopefully it it puts me on the right path. Yeah. Thanks. Well, you know, I... uh, you can always submit it to your administrators and it's like, see, look at me. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for people to find you? Um, so I'm Luke Lori Games at Twitter. That's probably easy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I have a web page, but I barely use it. I'm on BGG. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm out there and I, I check everything. Okay, cool. So uh, – I'll see you all out there and I'll see people at conventions. I usually go to the California cons. I'll probably go to Gen Con next nice. year. I should have some games coming out. So I'll be there. That's awesome. I hopefully will too. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you again. This is, uh, and this is Kathleen Mercury. Uh, you can find me on the internet at Mercury with seven M's on Twitter. You can find me uh, board game geek funk donut one word. And you can always find all my game design resources of questionable efficacy. Just kidding. <laughs> all my game design resources at KathleenMercury.com. And with that, I hope everyone has a great school year and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast. You can find out more about us and the people who create this show over at InverseGenius.com and all of our other wonderful, wonderful shows, including on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. We are also now joined by the Party Gamecast and Nephilim, who you might remember as Stephanie, previous co-host here on the Games and Schools and Libraries podcast, and our friend, Lynn Theory. Thank you for listening. Games and Schools and Libraries is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System.